0: hello everyone happy july welcome back to the let's run.com track talk podcast jam-packed episode for you guys this week we've got the bowman track club running a secret meet out in portland we'll discuss the times there raven rogers the world championship silver medalist has changed coaches from Derek thompson to pete julian usa's may or may not be happening emma coburn sets the colorado state mile record and then we've got a couple of great interviews for you. One with Dwayne Solomon, the third fastest American 800 meter runner of all time, who recently retired. And Weldon, please tease our second interview. Welcome to the Beer Mile.
1: The ultimate battle of liver and lungs involves drinking four beers and running four laps. Beer are you ready? Get set. Drink.
2: Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the Beer Mile World Classic is this Saturday, July 4th at 1pm on Let'sRun.com. We have a talk with the co-founder of the Beer Mile, Nick McFalls, at the end of this. This is the, I think, sixth Beer Mile World Classic, the first virtual one. So it's been done remotely. We don't. I don't know the results. It's already been done, but they're putting together like a packaged, very polished, I think, 30-minute show. So... I think it's right after the nathan's hot dog eating contest you can come
0: on let's run.com and watch that
3: doesn't get any more american than that four laps four beers fourth of july
0: nice pitch there, robert
3: oh wow robert the fourth of july
0: yeah that worked out nicely all right i mean seriously if they can turn a hot dog eating
3: contest into a national sport i think this could be a global sport
0: We'll see if it can't take off. I mean, in COVID, it's going to have extra attention. One of the few sporting events that's actually taking place in the USA. Maybe uh, maybe this is the year of the beer mile.
2: And John, I think you sold it short today. It is July 1st. But I think it's my wife was listening to the day show. Craig Melvin said, we're halfway through this miserable year. <laughs> Something to that extent. But we've made it. We're on the back half. It's got to get better, right? It's got to get well, better
0: you think that, but I was listening to Ben Rosario a few weeks ago. He did a podcast and he was essentially saying, hey, look, there's no guarantee that once the calendar turns to 2021 that things are going to get any better. I mean, that's just an arbitrary number. It doesn't mean anything. So people are just like, only halfway left in this terrible year. And then it's like, well, yeah, what if this stuff is still... It's not like COVID's is just going to cease to exist on January 1st, 2021.
3: As the uncle to Walden's daughter, I'm appalled. This has been a wonderful year. Baby CeCe is with us. We love you, baby CeCe.
0: Yeah, I,
2: I don't want to start the talk too soon of the 2021 Olympics. If they could be in jeopardy. I've got all these crazy theories. Japan handled COVID really really well. But if you handled it, you may not want anyone coming into your country from other places. But we'll save those conspiracy theories for later.
0: Yeah, we've got some running results to talk about, guys. From last night in Portland, the Bauman Track Club... Ran a meet. Now, the question is, in COVID, is it a meet if it wasn't streamed on Instagram Live? There was no any sort of streaming, live streaming of this meet in Portland, but there were some very fast times. Elise Cranny, I would say, is the surprise of the day. She runs 1448, which is a huge PR, and she finishes first in the women's 5000. And then her boyfriend, Sean McGordy, wins the men's 5000 in 1311. Are they have they supplanted Shelby Houlihan and Matthew Centrowitz? Matthew Centrowitz did not race. Are they the new Bowerman Track Club power couple?
3: I think that would be a clear no, Jonathan, in terms of lifetime accomplishments. But very impressive stuff. I mean, coming into the into the. Meet john still seems to be very hurt these well these young people are very upset if they can't watch the meet live like you really wanted to stay up till what what 12 what time was the race run like nine o'clock 11 o'clock you really want to be watching people run in a circle at, at 12 midnight with like a shitty stream anyway well, if
0: it's like the nico young stream no but if it's well streamed i kind of i mean this is a, they did the same thing last year with centro Lamong, and kincaid and it was actually really exciting so yeah i would have liked to see some of the best runners in america race each other especially you look at some of these results josh thompson and lopez lemong they were only separated by eight thousands now if they were just holding hands across the finish line no but do i want to see the u.s indoor 1500 champ go against the 10k champ and a great kick to the finish if that's what happened absolutely yes Okay, let's
3: talk about these. You know, people may not know exactly what happened in which race, but C- Cranny was amazing. I mean, coming into this pre- race, her her PR was 1525. Is that right? And she runs 1448, beating Courtney Freirex 1450. Big PR for her. Colleen Quigley 1510, 2020 Olympic a marathon champion. Gwen Jorgensen is fourth in 1518.
0: Did you just call Gwen Jorgensen the 20? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, didn't get I got the joke. My bad. And
3: Mariel Hall was fifth in 1530.86. So when we talk about these races, let's go one by one and sort of give everybody the full detail. Because I think there's a lot to talk about in, in terms of the biggest winners of the night, the biggest losers of the night. To me, Cranny has got to be the biggest winner, 1448. I mean, pretty amazing stuff, right? And the the big thing that hit me was let's Go back in time. You know, what, what, what's that famous movie, John? Take the back Time to the Machine? Future? Yes, Back to the Future. Thank you. Didn't know if you'd ever read heard about it since you're much younger than I am.
0: Oh, Robert, Back to the Future is a class. Anyone who is listening to this podcast who hasn't seen Back to the Future, stop listening to the podcast and go watch it. It's one of the all-time classics, one of my favorite movies.
3: Anyways, but I see this time from cranny, and I first of all, I think – Jerry Schumacher does it again. I mean, he he takes somebody who is not a college superstar and does a sick performance with her. Um, I mean, Woody Kincaid last year, Elise Cranny this year. I'm not saying that the, the now banned Alberto Salazar isn't a good coach, but he always I guess he took Mo Farah from being pretty good at the world level to really good. But Jerry's done a wonderful job of identifying talent and and, and bringing it to a, a good performance once again, but the big thing I'm thinking about here is John, let's go back in time to Mary Kane when she was in high school. And we had the big three on the women's side. We had Elise Cranny, We had Mary Kane and we had Alexa Framson and Cranny was like the third of the big three, right? Kane was the world championship finalist and this and that. And Frameson Framson was winning NXN cross and Cranny was not doing all that much. I mean, she was really, really good, but not,
0: Robert, no, 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 this this is a false narrative. She ran four ten in high school for fifteen hundred, which is obviously not cane levels, but that's still really, really fast. She got fourth at World Juniors, her senior after her senior year of high school. I mean, she was a big talent. She didn't improve that much in college in terms of times, but four ten as a high schooler and fourth at World Juniors, I'd say she's a pretty big talent.
3: I'm just saying, who would have predicted back then that she would be the, have the most impactful? professional career
0: well i mean she hasn't so far well
3: the 1448 is way better than anything that kane i think will ever do the rest of her life and i i, I guess it, you know,
0: is it better no, than it, what kane's already done
3: no i mean okay if we want to cap kane at 16 i i don't think kane's coming back to her world championship final for the rest of her career and then if you if, if you want to look at a frameson i mean a frameson's won what 401 now 40, I mean, 402 which are what
0: are her prs 403 which is back from 2015 when she was 18 years old.
3: I'm just saying, but yes. So basically Kane and a haven't PR'd in what? Five plus years. Cranny's running big PRs. So kudos to her.
0: Yeah, kudos. Absolutely. And I think just at the depth, Bauman, we already knew Bauman had ridiculous depth, but you know, Cranny at 1448, Frerichs at 1450. They're both now in the top 10 all time among Americans. Remember Vanessa Fraser, indoors, who was uh, Cranny's teammate at Stanford, ran 14.48. It's just pretty ridiculous the the depth that group has right now. And Shelby Houlihan, who doesn't even run the 5,000 that much outside of USA's, but is also the American record holder. It's a pretty ridiculous assemblage of talent. It's kind of shocking because you guys started
2: talking about how great Cranny was in high school, and I viewed the big two high school female runners as Ephraimson and Kane. I don't know how I sort of forgot about Cranny. Like she was kind of sandwiched between them, and I guess she didn't run as fast. You know, she didn't run the low. You know, under four hundred five. But I forgot how good she was in high school. But in college, her best finish was four hundred ten. And then last year was her first year as a pro, and she only runs fifteen twenty five. I mean, this this performance is shocking.
0: Yeah, definitely surprised. Obviously, you know she's what Todd made some big improvements and I don't want to discount like Jerry Schumacher is obviously a fantastic coach. Like y- you need to identify the talent, which he's very good at, and then you need to bring it out and he's done both of those things. So I'm not trying to say, Oh, it's it's all because she was talented all along, but to act like she, she was a, she was a big talent, but yeah, she was overlooked in high school because Everimson and Kane were the two fastest high schoolers ever.
3: She reminds me a little bit of, of Weldon Johnson. Academics, Yale University, maybe the academics of college, prevented him from achieving the greatness that he could have in college. But folks, talent doesn't go away, particularly on the men's side, sometimes on the women's side, and we're seeing that here. The other big thing here from this women's five thousand, guys, we got some other races to get to. Is I think Courtney Firex is a big winner, John. You probably have the stats as to what she can run fourteen fifty. First of all, she she crushes Colleen Quigley by twenty seconds. This is not a good result for Quigley. I mean, Quigley, I guess fifteen ten for being a steeplechaser is good, but. When you're losing to someone in your event by 20 seconds it's hard to think that you're going to be beating her in, in the steeplechase anytime soon but to me this is very encouraging for fryricks I mean when I think about the, the women's steeple chase you've obviously got the two medals from America and then the world record holder be it just chip coach and, and Chip Koich now she's run 1439 I think in the past but last year you know she went out hard in that race I think and only ran 1447. So 1450 from 1447 is not that far off. Am I saying that I expect her to challenge Shepkowicz for gold? Probably not. But do I think that Emma Coburn can run 1450? I'm not sure that she can, John.
0: Well, Emma Coburn's pretty fit. I'd say she's probably more of a 1500 steeple type than a 5k steeple type. Emma Coburn has never actually run a 5000 as a professional, but she was an NCAA mile champ in college, which is something Ferex never could have been. So I think they're coming at it from two different distances. I think
3: the steeple is a, is a nice, you know, meeting uh, middle ground for the two of them. But this would give me hope if I'm Farrick's. You know, I mean, she. I guess fireworks does have the American record right in the steeple chase and did beat her <laughs> that, um, in, in that race. But this would give me hope that you know what I can beat Emma Coburn next year in the Olympics when it matters most.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a great sign. And I think the knock sometimes on Frerichs is like her PRs at other distances weren't really in line with that nine flat steeple, which is the American record. You know, she entered 2020 with PRs of 1512 and, and 411. And then she ran 1502 indoors at BU and now 1450. And I think you can say, hey, that's a pretty... <laughs> when you're top 10 all time, you're faster than Dina Castor ever was for 5,000. It's pretty legit 5,000 for Courtney Frericks. And then Quigley, I mean, 1510, obviously, you would want her to be within 20 seconds of, of Frericks. That would be nice. But she's also like Coburn. She's coming from a mile type. I would say even more of a miler than Coburn, given that she is the 2019 indoor mile national champion. She beat Shelby Houlihan in that race. And we also know Quigley, I don't know how healthy she was. I mean, we're assuming all these people are totally healthy. She's healthy enough to race, obviously. But she's had injury issues the last every year, so maybe she's eighty five percent. You know,
3: okay, John. Maybe I should re- revise what I said about Quigley because I didn't realize that You're right talking about who's more of a mile or who's more of five thousand. Her PR coming to this was fifteen fifty eight, so that's a huge PR. That's pretty amazing. So maybe she should be feeling good too. She, you know, this is probably in line to what Coburn could run for for five thousand. So maybe she thinks, hey, put me in a, in a steeple and, and I'll be competitive. So her PR,
0: Robert, her PR. Worth noting, Quigley's PR that she just ran is faster than Courtney Fredericks had ever run in her life until last night.
3: All right, let's move to the men's 5,000. A lot of results to get through there. Sean McGordy, big PR. I think he was 1321 before. It's now 131122. He gets the win over Grant Fisher, also 1311. Those would be world championship times, but they don't count.
0: Olympic times.
3: Yeah, excuse me. Evan Jager is third, 13, 12, 12. Ryan Hill, fourth, 13, 15, 28. Chris Derrick, 13, 46, 75. And then um, DNF for Lamong, Ahmed, Josh Thompson, Mark Scott, and Woody uh, Woody Kincaid. Did, Mark Scott did not run nor did Woody Kincaid. When I look at this, obviously, you know, nice PRs for McGordy and, and Fisher. To me, though, I, I, I see two things, and I, I have to disagree with someone on the message board. You know, pe- people were saying this is a good result for, for Evan Jager and Ryan Hill. And I, I was like, what? Not, not for me. Not, not for me at all. Ryan Hill? Someone's like, oh, he's not done yet. I'm like, come on, dude. You want to make the Olympics in the 5,000? You don't want to be finishing fourth in the inter squad scrimmage in the 5,000. I know he struggled with injuries in recent years. But to me, I don't know, John. Like, Do you think this is a good result for him?
0: I, well, I think it's better than what we've seen recently from him. And I think the one thing that we know about Ryan Hill is he's a kicker you put him in a close championship race. I mean, look at his USA track record. It's exceptional outdoors and McGordy and Fisher, obviously they're really big talents, but this is a time trial race. We know that. And you put him in a championship. I think if he has the fitness to run 1315, I still think his, his kick is dangerous enough that I think this is a positive sign.
3: Well, I guess you can justify it that way. And then to me, Jager. I mean, I know he's good. Uh, whatever, 13 12 is not a bad result for him, but to me, I want to see more than this. I, I think, look, he's already medaled on the world stage. There's one thing that he needs it's an Olympic gold or world championship gold. Obviously, the Olympic gold would be much more historic and, 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 and remembered. But to me, if you're again, if you're going to be winning Olympic gold, shouldn't you be, be better than the third best man on in the inter squad scrimmage?
2: But, Robert, you need some perspective. He missed this hole last year, he didn't run at all last year, pretty much, right? Right. So to come back and he's in the same shape and this is some BS thing that doesn't matter, like they're not really focused on something. Like he's in the same ballpark. And am I mistaken? Was Grant Fisher's PR 1320 something? How is that possible?
0: Well, he didn't really race much last year off the turning pro. And, you know, call it like 1320, is still pretty darn fast for a college kid. That was 1329. You need to get in the right races. I mean... But okay, we're analyzing a
2: 1311 versus a 1312. Okay, it's nice this time of year. These are like all world leaders because nobody's raced this year. But like those times, big picture, aren't world class unless maybe, you know, all the Kenyans, they've quit training, they've all shut down. When we open back up, everyone's out of shape next year. But big picture, okay, these are sort of interesting times. 1311 1312 1315 whatever i mean mariel hall's time was way back i mean that's something I'm, I'm more interested in like something off with her but cranny huge performance huge step up everyone else 1311 1312 like what's the difference
0: yeah i agree with Weldon. like it's a, it's a it's an squad meet and june june 30th on a year where no one's racing like it doesn't really matter that much and then it, I mean, it does matter from the point where we see cranny making a big breakthrough some of these breakthroughs those are real and yeah like if you're way off the pace like mariel hall maybe it's a little worrying but like jaga i don't think I, what Jager runs in this meet isn't going to determine whether he wins olympic gold it's it, is he going to be able to outkick concessible skip is he going to be able to break him because that's the only guy that matters about him he's not going to win c- until that he beats that guy. And that's really the only thing that matters is like, I guess you would argue he needs to be strong enough to drop Caputo because if he's there with a lot to go, he's screwed.
3: Well, I guess it could be, and if Caprudo's hurt or whatever, then you can win by default. I mean, you know, somebody has to win that race. I'm just saying, yes, I agree with you in the sense of, you don't I mean, we don't want to be overanalyzing some scrimmage, but we don't have anything else to analyze. So I'm going to overanalyze it. (laughs) But I want to see a change in mentality from Mr. Jager. You know, I don't want him like I, I just feel like, come on, dude, like this is it. This, this You don't have that many more years left. You should be crushing these guys. You should think these are young college kids. I'm better than them. I ran 1302 years ago. I mean, five. How many years ago was that, John? 2014. Like, you know, I mean, I I I just I don't know. I, I would like to see if I if I woken up this morning and seen him win this race, I was like, yeah, you got it. But it's interesting to me, I wonder if if, if these if these guys are, are running some of this because they've got reduction clauses or a minimum number of races they have to run. I mean, it's interesting to me that Chris Derrick would even bother to finish this race in 13.46, Muriel Hall, 15.30. Uh, kudos, to, I think, to, to Jerry to somehow getting these people out there and on the track and making them finish, even if it's somewhat of an embarrassing time, to say, hey, this is where you are. This is per- Maybe this isn't acceptable or maybe to give them a marker of where they are. Um, because I think sometimes it's very easy when you're a professional. It's not like college where you have to show up at the conference meet. You can always push it off, push it off, push it off. Sometimes to show up and get an eye opener like that is actually good for you in the long term.
2: Right. I mean, you could argue it's the people who didn't race. That's what you should be more concerned about. Like there's no Centro in these results. So someone shows up and races, they're at least at some point training they think they can race.
3: No, I think it's very troubling. I mean, what is Centro, what's done is – in recent, I mean, I guess he did run that fast 5,000 last year, but it seems like this guy is constantly on the shelf, um, constantly not racing. Woody Kincaid also not running in this race. What's going on there? I, I agree with you, Weldon, on that front. And then let's talk about the women's 1500, Shelby Houlihan and Carissa Swizer, 402. Again, John, I don't want to overanalyze it, but. This is, comes out at the same day that she, uh, you found a woman's running article on her where she said, I want to break 350 in the 1500. I want to break 14 flat in the 5000. I know those goals aren't really necessarily probably realistic, but why not aim for them? But to me, this result is a little bit disappointing in the sense of, like, you know, if you're going to run close to – she's run 354. Shouldn't 402 be fairly easy? I mean, it's who's
0: good. who's to say it wasn't? We did, this is why we didn't – you know, I'm a little peeved. We didn't get to see this. Maybe she was – jogging this whole thing or just pacing schweizer i mean we don't know how this race played it paid out played I out guess
3: i guess i can look at the splits right here john we have splits somewhere
0: yeah but you, you can't you can't get a sense of how easily someone was running just by looking at the splits
3: we
2: can see their last lap
0: yeah that's
3: fair okay she did go out pretty slow she went out in f- basically 49 and then a 66 so she was 155 so that would probably be about got 210 for 800 is that right Two eleven even so th- that's pretty impressive she went 65 and she closed in at
0: 61.9 yeah i don't know it's a 402 it's a practice run like i'm not gonna overanalyze that the you know the 1500 results i'm not too i don't think there's much to read into it carissa Schweizer. that's a nice pr for her 402 but after she broke the american record for 3k indoors i think it was clear that she's got some sort of mile speed so So, you know, Bowerman Group was kind of known. They're known for not racing. They'll
2: double at the USAs and do everything great at USAs, but sort of focus on the big events. And, you know, last year they had the time trial right before Worlds, but they at least streamed that. Indoors, they had the time trial, and I think those were streamed or we could watch those. Now with the pandemic, (laughs) we can't watch it. Or is this a new model? Like we'll just run times and it'll be like, you know, 1950. We just get a gate results. And I I don't know. I I wish we could see it, but you know, the race results weekly recap says with the pandemic still raging, the club could not promote the competition. Well, that's not true. You can promote it as much as you want. You know, obviously they can't allow fans and maybe the event that where they held it, like doesn't want, you know, maybe they don't want it streamed or too much publicity, but like, You could promote this. There's ways to do it. And I think also with post-pandemic, colleges and stuff may need easy ways to stream stuff. Like you can stream stuff on YouTube, but maybe like we should come up with a guide. Like here's the easiest way to stream stuff. Obviously with a phone, you can just do something live, but like you just need one camera, an internet connection, a YouTube thing, and like you can get a pretty decent stream. I mean, uh, I just post-pandemic, people are going to watch this. So it's, it's really great. They all got together and raced, but for fans, we're dying for anything. I'm kind of sick of this virtual stuff, but like people would have watched it if it could have been there.
0: Absolutely. Well, and you're not thinking big enough though. The step goes from skipping USAs to run a time trial to running a time trial behind closed doors without being streamed. The final evolution of this is for them not to run a time trial at all and just have their new PRs. Whatever Jerry Schumacher says they're capable of running is now treated as their personal best because they always say Jerry's great at predicting this stuff.
3: Yeah, I don't really care if it was streamed or not. I think Jonathan was, some source told him that the location did not want it streamed. So let's move on to something else.
0: Okay, let's move on. Other big news that broke earlier this week, we broke it actually, is that Raven Rogers, the 2019 World Championship silver medalist, will be departing Derek Thompson's training group. She's headed west to join Pete Julian's group. I think it's an interesting move, for sure, because you know not a lot of athletes will leave their coach after winning the silver medal at Worlds, but we we have seen this. So I, the move that immediately sprung to mind for me was Emma Coburn in 2016. She medals at the Olympics. It's her first medal. And she leaves Mark Wetmore to be coached by her husband, Joe Bossard. And then the next year, she wins the world title. And she's obviously run... She's gotten faster. She's run really well. She medaled at Worlds again last year. And Raven Broches, I don't now. I don't know why she made this move. I reached out to her agent, said, "Can we interview Raven?" I haven't heard back from him yet. But I can think of a couple of things. One, she's training with R.J. Wilson, who's the best in the world. Maybe she doesn't want to be doing that because that's her biggest rival. Two, look at what Pete Julian did with Donovan Brazier last year. He, his first year working with Brazier, Brazier breaks the American record. He wins the world title, has an amazing year, and then you've got. Obviously, Nike, sometimes they will put incentives in their athletes' contracts to work with the Nike affiliate group. They've got the resources of Beaverton. I mean, there there are reasons for this thing, but we don't know them right now.
3: John, John, this is simple. And I didn't think of it until I was reading the message board. And I, I wish I could give proper credit to the proper person. You think, why do you have that great success? Why do you leave? It doesn't make much sense. But then you say, well, Coburn did it. And it's the same reason why Coburn did it. Why did Coburn do it? For money, let's be honest. She was giving a significant portion of her salary to Mark Wetmore. Credit to Wetmore, by the way. If you want to be coached by a professional, you're giving him a cut of your winnings. And I, I think that you need to treat yourself like a professional. He's busy with the college team. If you want his time, pay up. But in, in, in this case here, yes, you know, I mean, she had her college success at Oregon, and you know, whatever. Maybe she doesn't want to train with AJ. But I would think training with AJ would actually help her. But to me, this is very simple. Look. Nike, they just opened Hayward Field. Who's like the one woman on the on the tower? Isn't there a picture of Raven Rogers? They want to promote the homegrown Nike. She's going to be the face of Pete Julian's female group. anyway, How many women are in that you know, They want to be able to say they have an Oregonian in the Olympics. This is all Nike marketing span. They don't want her training with the Adidas athlete anyways, but they want the hometown Oregon star to be the face of Eugene 2021. And I assume they're going to be paying her more because of that. So they, they gave her some money and she, maybe she wanted to be in, she likes Oregon personally better. Julian's obviously a good coach, but I, I think it's totally the marketing money aspect of it. That that's the big factor here. Now let's interview her and see what, see what the thing is. But I, I think the person who insinuated that on the message board was probably spot on.
2: Yeah. Nike likes stuff to be in-house now it used to be people could go out and train wherever. And they obviously let Raven go to Derek Thompson. She had great results last year, but it just just makes way more sense for her to be back in the fold. Pete Julian had great success. I forgot she's on the tower at the new Hayward Field. Oh, man, I just wish we were to meet right now at Hayward and basking. The Olympic Trials would have... They'd be over, right?
0: They would have just finished last weekend, yeah.
2: What a great Olympic Trials, man. The house we rented out there was just so great.
0: You know,
2: having beers at the... The tent place. Oh, man, it was fun. What, what a great trials, everyone.
0: Oh, yeah, it was awesome. I mean,
3: John and I, Jonathan and I got to enjoy it. Walden had to stay home with the baby duties in Connecticut, but we, we let him stream every once in a while into the house to see how we were throwing back the beers and stuff.
0: Oh, and then there was that one night at the Wild Duck where I found my one true love and we hit it off. And oh, wait, that didn't happen either.
2: Wait, speaking of such, John, we had, remember the clamoring we had for updates in your dating life? Like,
0: I don't think I would call it a clamoring.
2: Uh, actually we never found that audio but one of our guests told us that offline remember i I need to find that but like robert wants more segments you got any updates
0: i think we got to finish recording this segment guys you know we got an interview coming up but uh let's talk about i want to talk about what you guys were sort of hinting at no trials but usatf comes out now this was the most qualified press release i've ever seen they essentially every line was like this meet may or may not happen. And we still reserve the right to cancel it at any time. Like they really don't want to get people's hopes up, but at the same time they did say, Hey, we're trying to figure out a way to potentially have an end of season championship of some sort. It would either be the weekend of September 13th or September 20th. They don't have a venue set. My guess is Drake would probably be a pretty good option for it. And it's not going to be a Haywood field because Oregon has banned mass gatherings through the end of September. But they've said, look, it's either it might be a USA's, we might just call it an end of season championship because we don't want to call it a national championship and have people freaking out about getting ready for it. Now, my experience is an off year, not that many people are crazy to run USA's anyway. Like they should be doing, I wouldn't say they should be doing whatever they can to promote this meet, to have athletes run it because, you know, we don't want people spreading COVID or that sort of taking risks. But I think it's interesting, an interesting concept, and I'm glad to finally see after months of silence that USATF is trying to make something happen on this front. What, how do you guys take in this news?
3: I would like to see a USA Track and Field National Championships. I know there are ramifications for that in the sense of, you know, if they announce as a national championship and you have something in your contract that you need to place a certain place in this, you know, and you might rush because of COVID. So... My take on that would be like, look, if you're an athlete and you feel like you can't get ready for this, you should publicly shame your shoe company if they try to produce you because of COVID. So I, I think that I, I can see why they're hesitant to say that. But, I mean, if we have a meet to act like it should be the national championship, that's what it should be. And I think for almost most of the events, I mean, think about it, 100, 200, long jump, discus, all these things, there's like virtually zero chance of COVID spreading now some of the distance events obviously five thousand ten thousand jump
0: i mean they're all jumping into the same pit i know they're separated i mean we don't know how long it stays on surfaces but
2: wow you guys are worried about people getting covid from landing in the long jump like if that's the case like they shouldn't be having this meet
0: i mean the meat organizers are worried about it but i know i robert i agree with your point i think look if you call it usa's or you don't call it the national championship and you just call it end of season USATF meet i think people will still treat it as usa championships like people who win there will be like yeah that's I won't, they're not officially national championship champion that year, but I think a lot of people will kind of view it that way.
2: I see how, like, with shoe contracts, like, let's say you get a bonus if you win USA, people might rush out and they don't want to do that. But that's not on USA's, USATF. That's on the shoe companies. So, USATF is the leadership, the the big boy, the ones in charge, should go to all the shoe companies and say, like, we want you guys all to stay publicly, you will not pun- punish anyone or maybe you can, I guess if you still rewarded them, you know, you could still argue the incentives are there, but like at the very least you will not get dropped. Nothing will happen for you not showing up with these things. Just sort of, at least off the record, talk about that stuff, because every other sport is kind of trying to find a way to have stuff. And they're saying, Hey, look, if you don't want to compete, we're not going to penalize you, that sort of stuff. So just make it clear, a little leadership from the top, instead of like, seems like they're just like, we want to have a meet, but we don't want to give the wrong incentives. I think there's one other step you can take behind the scenes to kind of talk to the shoe companies, the very best. But there's always going to be sort of perverse incentives because like, okay, the NBA, you don't want to go to the bubble. Well, you're not going to get paid. So you're still being incentivized to go play. But as a society, sports, you know, the other sports seem to be kind of coming up with ways to try to hold events in a safe manner.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, Weldon. I think there should be amnesty if there's a USA TF, you know, USA Championship performance-related incentive there. They should be given amnesty if they fail to achieve it. Because you've also got to remember, all of these athletes, they're missing out on so many other incentive opportunities from competing at Olympics or making an Olympic team, from competing at Diamond Leagues, from getting the chance to run fast times this summer – all those things have essentially been taken away. So the, the shoe companies are saving money in that respect and that they're not going to have to pay out nearly as much incentives as a usual year. Where would you guys want to see this meet held if it happens?
2: Well, I was thinking Hayward, but you said no mass events. Would that means you can't even have the athletes there? Like you could keep the athletes apart. I, I guess the new Hayward opening without fans might suck i don't know and then if you're not going to have it there i've always i was thinking oh before when texas was opening up i'm like oh maybe you could have a meet in austin in the fall Uh, september is kind of still hot for texas so i think you could have a meet october november in texas
0: Uh, how about this weldon we've got a brand new stadium in outside of the second largest city in the country it was supposed to host the national championships this year Mount SAC, baby. Open it up.
2: Yeah, John, you think USATF is gonna go to the place where they pulled the Olympic trials from to have their championship. No way in hell.
0: What do you mean? USATF might ask it. I mean, the Mount it's finished. The stadium's ready to go. Mount SAC may say, screw you guys, like you yanked the trials from us, but USATF, I that I'd be most excited to go to a meet at that stadium than anywhere else other than Haywood.
2: Well, the problem is they're not gonna have fans, right? I think the only state that's kind of allowing Fans. I mean, Texas is on the books saying I think you can have fifty percent fans, but uh, right now that's not going to happen, really. So, it. Trust me, it won't be at Mount sack Because also, if you don't have fans, why do you need a big stadium? You could have it essentially at the high school track here in, in my hometown. You don't need. You don't need the fans.
0: Isn't Iowa? I feel like it's going to be a Drake. I feel like like Iowa seems to be doing okay with this from the latest thing I saw. That would be my guess of the options available, that might be the best place to stage it.
2: See, John, that's where you're wrong. We don't want to have too much COVID talk, but you know, they're putting all these sporting events in Florida because they were doing the best. Then you become the worst. So probably New York is the best place to have it. it going to be the best place to have it.
0: Uh, yeah, everyone's going to love going to Randall's Island for that. Uh, okay. Let's move on. The talk about another race that happened last week. This is another interest squad meet uh, Joe boss, group. I think team boss is what they're being now called I don't know they need to start working on uh, official branding for that but they go out and try to set the Colorado State Mile records Emma Coburn succeeds uh actually her Corey McGee and Danny Jones were all under the previous record she runs four thirty two she looked really good doing it guys I mean McGee and Danny Jones is a great Miler Corey McGee's a good Miler Coburn's a steepler and she beat both of them at the end on the final hundred so that was really impressive Morgan McDonald fell just short of the state record of 401 by Joe Klecker. He ran 402. Now, remember these times, this was at 4,500 feet altitude, which I think is probably one of the lower tracks they could find in the state of Colorado. But I I enjoyed watching this uh, and thought, you know, Coburn and McDonald, I don't think it's anything to go crazy about, but 432 at altitude for Emma Coburn, that's pretty solid. So since I've criticized
2: the Bowerman thing for not being streamed, can I now admit I didn't watch this? But, how, John, how was it actually streamed? I'm kind of curious how they, they did this. You at least were able to see this. Was it just like someone's phone and Instagram Live, and they put something up afterwards? I'm just kind of curious how you watched it.
0: Well, uh, I'll admit I did not actually watch this live either because it was on a Saturday night, and uh, you know I was otherwise preoccupied. But uh, it was Flow Track broadcasted it live, and I went back and watched the races, and the commentary was a little patchy but the stream of the races themselves weren't that bad So you had to pay to watch this no it was, they said it was free uh i think you needed to cre- you might have needed to create a flow track account a la the 2016 ncaa cross country championships when we freaked out but i don't think i think it was it was free to watch
3: you guys are missing the forest from the trees to me this was disappointing we've been talking about a sub f- four in all these different states this is a really good opportunity for more, for someone to do it in colorado on the men's side Morgan McDonald had like a massive last lap. I think he ran like a 55 or 54, but this was never going to be a sub four with the way the pace they went out on this. So I don't know. I'm glad that they're, I'm glad people are getting out showing their fitness. Obviously people are training, but I would have liked to have seen the sub four here.
0: I would have too. I heard it was windy, but yeah, obviously it would have been nice to see a sub four, but it's, it's, there's a reason no one's ever done it. It's pretty tough. Yeah, I agree with Robert. When I just saw the results, I'm like,
2: oh, they didn't break four. I was disappointed. I just want a sub four in Colorado. Like, for these sort of one off events that are just glorified time trials, I mean, I guess they're competitions, but, you know, Colorado, there's never been a sub four. What do you want a sub four? The Bowerman guys go race. Yeah, we can analyze the death of 1311 versus the 1312, to 1248, 12, yeah, 1348, 1250, you know, 1350. But big picture, we're sort of just searching for stuff to kind of keep us amused. Right.
0: Yeah. I think they did a good enough job about that. I mean, I'm glad some of these big name groups are getting out there and doing stuff and posting results. And is it ideal? No, but I think these athletes want to race and fans want to reason. Like the whole reason these athletes have shoe contracts is not to just train all summer and hide away. It's to get their brand out there and get their name out there. And you need to keep doing that. Like, you need to justify your contract, you know, and that's for them. It's going out and racing.
2: Yeah,
3: and I'm surprised that Danny Jones did race. She still doesn't have the contract. She's third and four thirty-four fifty. If I was her, I would seriously consider going back to college next year.
0: She's already hired an agent. She,
3: well, can, can you pay it back somehow?
0: I don't think so. Wait, wait, Robert. You're saying she needs to reconsider again? You. Re- Based off the, int- the results of some intra-squad time trial, you're saying that she need now needs to go back to college. I don't get. It. I don't know. I just
3: feel like she's pigeoning her. her unless she's got something ready to sign and a-, a-, a thing, she's kind of pigeoning her soul in her negotiating. I don't know if these. Comp- I kind of feel like sometimes these companies give people what they think they're worth, but she's kind of pigeoning her whole here by how. By, she's already joined Team Boss, so that probably rules out Jerry Schumacher. It's, it's clear that she wants to stay in Colorado, so then Nike's not bidding. So why, if you're New Balance or somebody else? Would you bid really high for her, and you've already got two Team New Balance people beating her in this race? So I'm just saying you, you're killing, you're negotiating here in I, terms of. I mean, uh, she's uh, a
0: she's a four time NCAA champion. She's won the NCAA's in the cross in cross country and that's what I'm she's saying, a big talent.
3: If they had the NCA season, she could have been a complete legend going into the into, into the marketing. People may yeah. be forgetting about that. So
0: I I think they're not going to say, "Oh man, she was only third in this." time trial at altitude where we don't know how our training's been like, oh, the sky is falling. I don't think this is killing her negotiating power at all.
3: I don't think it's that cutthroat when people negotiate, but I do think that I mean, she's signaled what she wants to do and she doesn't have a contract. So she may have killed her own negotiating power.
0: Yeah. And no, I think the other thing, Robert, you made a good point. Like she has lost out on a significant potential earnings this year by not having an NCAA season, because if she goes out and wins, you know, the 5k 15 or something, or, just adds a bunch of titles and heads into the Olympic trials. This is is the hottest thing going. She's going to get a huge number. Maybe, maybe she makes the Olympic team and then it bumps up even more. I mean, and now, you know, she's still well positioned for future success, but she's not, her contract's not going to be what it would have been if she had come out with a regular 2020 spring season.
3: All right, guys, we need to move on, keep moving on. We've got a lot to get to and we've got these two interviews coming up, but guys, we're, what. 40 almost 40 minutes into the podcast and we haven't gotten to the performance of the weekend. No one's even talked about it. John didn't even tease it at the beginning of the show. Alex Van Christiansen has run 1406 for 5000 meters and 906 for the steeplechase. Maybe asking why am I mentioning this? Because this kid is from well, he's Danish. So that means he's from Denmark, right, John? He's 15 years old. No, it old. means
0: from he's from a uh breakfast foods manufacturer out in the Midwest. So he's
3: 15-year-old Alex Van Christensen has run age group world record of 14.06 and 9.06. That's faster than Mr. Ingebrigtsen ran at that age. How crazy good is that, John?
0: Yeah, it's really... I ran for four years of college and never got close to 14.06, so it's obviously really fast. I mean, I don't really know what else to say about it. 14.06 is freaking fast for a 15-year-old. And... We'll see. Does this mean he's going to be the next Jakob Ingebrigtsen? Who the hell knows? You know, let's see how the next few years go, but it's really impressive. And congrats.
3: Well, I don't like hyping up young teenage female distance stars. Robert, but I,
0: Robert, I, let's be honest. You do. You I like, you. I like the, the
3: men stars, not the females, not the women. And, you know, there's an interesting post on here. Like they're saying, well, look, this guy's gotta be, he's probably definitely undertrained compared to the Ingebrigtsens. Um, And they're talking about the different age groups records. Now, moving up to next year at age 16, 17, and 18, it gets significantly uh, harder because at 16, Jacob Incomberson ran 13.35. And he also ran 8.26 in the steeplechase. So he's got a lot. It's
0: just absurd. 13.35 and 8.26. 8.26 at 16? That's just nuts. 13.35 13.35 seems way better to me. I and mean, I was
2: Google. That's what I was looking up, actually. I'm like, these times don't seem that great to me compared to Jakob. But so 16-year-old, almost 17, he ran 13.35. This guy ran, what, 14.09? What's his steeple time? 9.06. 9.06 is like nothing. That's not even close to
0: fourteen oh. I agree. But it's impressive. I mean, we, he might be, this guy, he's probably not done growing. It's not easy to get over the barriers when you're 15 years old.
3: So. Folks, you can watch video. We're going to put this, the thread in the show notes. Alex Van Christensen strikes back 14.06, 5,000, and now about 15 years old. They've got the Instagram video of him running. People are saying nice, efficient form, rather Rupp-like. And he seems to have, I don't know, a little more charisma than Rupp, I would say. He, there's a picture of him pumping his fist at the finish line. This kid has got a lot of passion. Oh, He looks just like his dad, too. Dad's got, Dad's got the dad bod. that has got
0: to be the dad, the guy next to him, right? In this Instagram? Probably. Well, wait, Robert, you're overlooking. Here's the biggest thing. Here's why I think this guy's going to be a success. His name is Axel Vang Christensen. I mean, that is a great name.
3: wait, 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 wait. wait. I really should have read this whole entire thread before I brought it up. He, he's... I was saying he was way way under-trained compared to in-person. And Then I'm now reading a thread saying, his coach once said he already runs 100 miles a week, but at low intensity. So he isn't training as hard as others. So we'll see. But anyways, congratulations to
2: Alex. Axel. Oh, excuse me. Speaking of low-intensity training, that's very smart. Still not too late to sign up for the let's Run.com summer training program. Go to Let'sRun.com slash coaching. I've signed up. Robert, I hope you've been analyzing my workouts. I'm going to be a forced. I'm also coaching one of the coaches in the program, but it's going well. And also, you need to stay healthy if you're in the summer training program or even if you're not. Norma Tech, it's been extended. The $300 off sale of their Pulse 2.0 recovery system is continuing on into July. Check that out. You can save $300 on the on the Pulse recovery or $50 on percussion product, products Check those out in the show notes.
3: We thought about reaching out to Weldon to analyze his training yesterday, but we decided not to, c- to quite do that because he's only been on the program for about a week. Anyone that's been on for about two weeks, we've been reaching out to. Uh, folks, this isn't cookie cutter stuff. I we I custom designed I've got a 60-year-old guy that's going for sub-six. Sub-six or bust, we've given him eight weeks of base, and then we we, we decided to crush our own business model instead of making him purchase a mile training plan i I said all right i'll give you four my four weeks for the mile so he's got a little bit of a hybrid plan john gold has not signed up for the plan john how's your training coming
0: uh it's okay i did eight by 400 yesterday on the track and was around i was between 68 and 70 for all of them which it was two minutes rest so my high school self even my high school self would have been better than that i think but yeah, not all is lost. I I think I can confidently say I'm in sub-five shape, but I don't know how much below that. All right, guys, one thing. I love having my ego stroked. And, Robert, you mentioned I had an idea last week. I think it's a brilliant idea. The 2024 Olympic Marathon. It's in Paris. John, let me stroke it for you. Okay.
3: Great minds think of why. Last week in the Throwback Thursday, John wrote about – yeah, the 2004 Olympic marathon when Meb won. The race was held at Meb night. did
0: not win. Meb got second.
3: Won a medal, excuse me. Okay. And in there, John somehow was talking about sort of evening marathons and stuff like this. And this was a brilliant idea. This is so brilliant. We need to start a petition. John, Paris is the city of lights. Paris will be hosting the 2024 Olympics. The marathon should be run at night in Paris. Temperatures getting colder as the race goes on. It's a beautiful, the overdrops. The aerial views would be amazing. He's got an amazing picture of Paris at night. I will give full credit to Jonathan Galt when this happens. IOC organizers, we need to make this happen now. Give us something to talk about and to be hopeful for for the next three years. A brilliant idea by Jonathan Galt. And speaking of brilliance, I was there was a lack of brilliance last week on last week's podcast. I made a rare mistake, John. I said that Dwayne Solomon – was we're going to have the interview with him, right, coming up soon. But I said that he was – Nick Nick Simmons said he was his main rival, and that wasn't true. He said Kadavis Robinson was the main
2: rival, so I made a mistake about that. Wait, why are we talking about Paris? Why did this genius idea come out? I'm really confused during COVID that you guys both had this thought about Paris City of Lights. Well,
0: no, I had a great thought, and Robert agreed that it was a great thought. But this was our Throwback Thursday weekly series. I go back and rewatch one old race. I was watching the 2004 Olympic Marathon in Athens – Which was held in the evening. I was like, "Hmm, "Why don't they hold Olympic marathons in the evening anymore?" And because I remember, I'm going to give credit here. Brett Lana is actually the guy who gave me the idea because I read his idea. He's like, "Hey, we should have the Olympic marathon in Tokyo at night. Tokyo would be look amazing, lit up." Instead, it's in Sapporo. So I'm like, "Well, that ship has sailed." But I think for Paris, this is a great opportunity. IOC, don't waste it.
3: Okay, guys. One last thing before we get to these interviews. Did you guys see this thread? We didn't really do the threads of the week, but we have a hard deadline coming up, so we only have like two or three minutes left. There's a 13-page thread called Robert Brandt roasts 10 men and Drew Hunter gets feelings hurt. This is amazing. There's 13 pages, so like over 200 posts. Robert Brandt's a 1337 UCLA runner, pretty good guy, pretty good runner, I think the 5 and the ten. He was on Strava and I think he ran a workout and just randomly put on there. I don't know why why it is, but I want to crush the Timman guys like a ball of Tim and foil. Maybe it's their overt confidence, overconfidence, and then proceeding to finish in the bottom third of every elite field they enter. See you guys in the spring, exclamation part. I mean, that's pretty mild trash talking, right? That's I think clearly kind of joking. A lot of the Timman guys aren't the top-tier pros like Drew Hunter. They're kind of, you know, guys like Robert Brandt, like pretty good college runners, but not superstars. For some reason, Drew Hunter, who is like actually, you know, really good, gets on there and responds on Strava. Robert Brandt, dude, you hurt my feelings. Why do you have to be hateful just to be hateful, being 100% serious? Regardless of your performances, we've done a lot of good for the sport, and I, am, and I am sad that you can't see that. Hope you're happy putting people down. Guys, trash-talking is part of sports. Like, I don't know. Like, I thought this was kind of hilarious. I thought it was like, there was no reason for Brandt to do it, but it was kind of harmless, and then I thought Hunter was my take was a little bit oversensitive, but then we had 200 posts back and forth about how Robert Brandt has, it's the old thing that used to happen all the time. in let's run Robert Brandt. cannot speak about drew Hunter because he's not as fast as drew Hunter. And then people are going back and forth. And then it was fascinating. I don't know how you have 200 posts, but actually I read most, almost all of them. And it was a pretty interesting thing.
2: Okay. Full disclosure. I saw the thread clicked on it and there was no like link to something. And I'm like, I didn't even know who Robert Brandt was. So the, the. Tim and guys need to come back with that but it sounds pretty innocuous I don't know what would prompt them to do that but he's just kind of joking around trying to stay motivated I think it actually it's kind of good for the sport to have yeah, a it's rivalry. got us talking
0: about it I like track feuds I mean is it kind of a dick comment yeah it's it's not the nicest thing to say and I mean there's a kernel of truth in there yeah the tin men they're not all going out and crushing it, but. I don't think people are expecting them to. What they are doing is promoting the sport, putting out good YouTube videos. I mean, for a group of their talent, obviously they've got Drew Hunter at the top, who's very, very good. But for, for a group of that talent, I think they've probably got a bigger following than you would expect, just because they're really engaged. They're putting out t-shirts. They're doing this thing. So obviously they're a net positive for the sport.
2: I thought also that it seems to be some, there's some posters who love to go after Tinman. And it means they're probably rival coaches who aren't as good. So I thought originally that's what the thread was because I didn't know who Robert Brandt was. I feel like <sighs> 10 men, they get a lot of discussion in the forums. So that's a good thing.
3: Absolutely. My, my favorite map well, on this came from a poster saying, I wish I was Dave Waddle. One, Robert Brandt is a ballsy racer and really fun to watch. If you don't know him, you paid zero attention to the NCAA for the last two years, and I feel bad for you. So that's for you, Walton. Two, Brandt said exactly what everyone was thinking. 10 men elite is 100% overhyped and full of crap. I'm glad someone to call it out and gotten the crowd going a bit for the spring. Drew came up short, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, they're not half as good as they act. So he's siding with brand there, but then on three, he says, however, Drew is absolutely right. True. Drew, Tim and elite and Tom have done a lot of good for the sport. I love seeing young athletes and meets wearing logos from elite teams. And i see the hammer and axe everywhere. Every legit high school kid in the country knows Tim and elite, not because they're that great at running, but because they're really great at branding and it's good for the sport. So totally true. Amazing stuff. So guys, both people can be right. It's just fun. A little trash talking is not going to hurt anybody.
0: All right, that's it for this week, guys. We've got two or more interviews coming up. So we've got Dwayne Solomon, and then we've got the Beer Mile World Classic founder, Nick McFall. So stay tuned for those guys coming right up. John, give
2: us a little insight of what people are going to hear about Dwayne Solomon
0: yeah it's it's a really great interview actually uh he talks about his start in the sport he talks about the olympic team in 2012 and how that drastically changed his life including financially he talks about how much he made on his first contract which is really interesting and then he also says something very interesting about donovan brazier in the world record towards the end so definitely stay tuned for that all right guys beer mile S- saturday
2: 1 p.m on let's
0: all right. And I am happy to be joined now by two-time U.S. indoor champion, two-time U.S. outdoor champion, Dwayne Solomon. He has a 142.82 personal best, which is the third fastest ever by an American. He finished fourth in the greatest 800-meter race ever run in the 2012 Olympics, and he announced his retirement from the sport of track and field on June 20th. Dwayne, thanks so much for joining us on the Let's Run podcast.
4: Hey, man. It's a pleasure, man. I'm 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 just very happy to be here, so, hey, it's a pleasure, man. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah. Uh, Where are you based these days? What have you been up to?
4: Uh, Actually, not too long ago, we actually moved to Arizona, so um, we're actually in the Phoenix area now. Um, You know, just wanted to be a little closer to family. You know, all the families on the West Coast. We were on the East Coast for so long um, when I was living in Orlando, so uh, we decided to make the move, and I think once I made that move, I knew, you know, running was going to be over for me for sure.
0: Yeah. When did you when did you move exactly?
4: Uh we moved in May. Yeah, the beginning of May. Yeah.
0: Okay, so pretty recent then.
4: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. How are you liking it out there? I like it, you know. Um it feels like home again, you know. Um East Coast was different. I liked it, but I never felt like it was home, you know. So, you know, coming back to um this side of the world, I feel at, at home again.
0: Yeah and we were messaging you know before to set up this interview and you mentioned that you're actually now in law enforcement academy and i was yeah. wondering you know what what exactly does that entail when did you start doing that when did you sort of make that decision as your next uh, career choice
4: man it was uh, you know i was going through a lot of um things that i wanted to do i was looking into being like a firefighter a police officer um those type of routes, and uh, I actually um I actually got into the police down in orlando um but it kind of wasn't something I wanted to do right away, so um ended up not you know not um not going that route. We came out here and uh I was talking to my dad and my dad actually works in the corrections out in georgia, and I, you know I was you know i was um, trying to pick his brain, and so when I got out here, I wanted to try my luck in that especially. Um, with everything that's going on in the road right now um, it's, it's a little dangerous right now to be a police officer um, so uh, i I'm gonna be working in the corrections um in the prisons out here um until I decide if I do want to go on the streets or maybe you know you know this will be what I want to do you know for a while
0: yeah what specifically what sp- specific role in the prisons would you have or are you going off to
4: I'll be an officer um c o two So, uh, eventually, you know, maybe go up to K9 or special teams, you know, something like that, you know, special units.
0: I just, I mean, I'm a pretty, I'm a newbie when it comes to this stuff. Like what would the job responsibilities entail? Are you guarding cells or what would you be doing? Yeah,
4: it's pretty much, you know, you're, I mean, you're doing it all, you know, you're doing the whole, you know, you know, driving the perimeter of the prisons. Um, you are, um, you know, you're taking inmates, you know, the medical, uh, you're taking them downtown to medical, maybe, you know, uh, one of the inmates, they may, you know, they may, you know, be going into birth and you have to be there with them the entire time. Um, it's, a, it's a, lot of things. It's almost like being a babysitter, you know, so pretty much, you know, you're allowing them to go eat, you're bringing them back, you're doing head counts. It's a lot of different things, you know? So, um, I'll be, I'll be busy moving around everywhere for sure.
0: Yeah. And you said you're in training for that. When, yeah. when would you actually start on the job?
4: Uh, so, yeah, I'm in the academy right now. I graduate in the, the end of July.
0: All right. So one month to go. We're talking on June 30th right now. Um, so, all right, let's talk a little bit about you running. Uh, the reason for this podcast, you know, your announcement a few weeks ago about re- retiring officially. Now, I say officially because you had only raced actually three times since the start of 2017. And I think a lot of people in the track world, that would see you your name pop up in a meet somewhere and they'd be like, Oh yeah, it's Dwayne Solomon, whatever happened to him. And
4: where have you been the last three or four years? Yeah. I, you know, I'm mean, to be honest. I've been kind of on and off trying to decide, you know, once, you know, once you're gone for that long, your mind kind of goes to the point where it's like, am I ready to race? I'm a little nervous to race because it's been so long. So, um, I got with the coach, um, that I coached with uh, because I coached the high school team cross country and track with him. I was um, an assistant coach. And so he was able to, you know, kind of take me on and, and I let him know, Hey, I want to, you know, go for another um, Olympic cycle. And he was like, that's awesome, man. Let's do it. You know? And so we got together and I was doing my workouts and my training and uh, it was very brief. And I got into a, I got into a race down in, uh, with Nashville totally, I, I just don't think I was ready. I I, I think that day I ran like one fifty five. Um, so I was like, I'm not ready yet. But at the same time, I'm like, I don't know if I want to put the all the work and effort to get back to where I was at. Um, so I think I was in the mental in the mental area where I'm like, uh, I think I'm good, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I still wasn't. But I still didn't give up that hope. I was still thinking, I'll try again. I'll try again, you know. Um, but then after the whole corona hit and all that stuff, I was just like, That's another year. Um, I'll pass. Yeah. But you you had been
0: training like for this year, you had been intending to compete in the Olympic trials then? Yeah. Yeah.
4: Oh yeah. Yeah. I was um like I was getting ready for it and you know, when the corona hit, it just kinda messed everything up and mentally it it just kinda took me out of it like, you know, let me, you know, let me just go ahead and get on with my life. Um, you know, I don't really have a lot of regrets in running at all that I did. I feel like I did what I wanted to do in the sport. I, um, I think the only regret that I had was just not really taking care of, you know, my body, um, when I needed to, you know, as far as recovery and all that kind of stuff. So if I could have changed anything in my career, I think it would have just been, you know, just getting more work done on my body and just kind of taking care of myself a little better and, and, and making my career a little longer than it. You know, it could have been probably.
0: Yeah. So I want to go back, you know, to sort of earlier in your career. Now, one of the things you became known for, especially, you know, domestically, was you were, you were a front runner. Yeah. And how did you land upon that style?
4: Um, I think the front running, that that must have started. I think it was either my last year of high school, the beginning of college. Um, because the beginning of high school, I was, I was just a pack runner. Um, I was very, um, what's the word, uh, timid. I didn't want to go to the front. I didn't know what I had. So I would just, you know, kind of, you know, just kind of gauge off everybody. Um, and then, uh, in, in my last year of high school, I started to build, you know, the strength up and I built the confidence up. And so I decided I was just going to lead races and, and I really could race anyway in high school. I could race from the back or the front. I had a nice ending uh, of my race. So I think high school was the you know first time I actually, you know, kind of began with that. And then I took it on to college and um, I had pretty good success with it. So it was just one of those ways, like I trained like that. So I was like, why don't I just race like this, you know? And um, and like I said, it was the only way I knew how to race. Um you know, all those years. And I felt comfortable doing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Was, do you remember the first time in a high school race where you kind of decided that was going to be your strategy and identity
4: had to pick? Let me see what race, what race did I actually go out? Yeah. You know what? It was actually um, the first race. I actually went out to the front and I was just like, let's just go for it. Um, I was, I was a sophomore in high school. It was a invite that we had ran And I just really went out there with no plan. I was just like, I'm just going to go out there and I'm just going to run and I'll see what happens. And I ended up running like 155, which was like a, it was like a, at the time, three second PR. So for me, I was like, wow, that works. I'm going to do that all the time now, you know? So it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And I took that mentality as like, I'm going to start racing like this and I'm going to make this you know, who I am. And it just kind of, you know, stuck from there. So it was just, it was just so, it was just the way that I like to race and I felt comfortable.
0: When you're a front runner, the attention is on you, you know, and I'm wondering when you're in that race, are you excited when you're in the front? Are you scared? Are you worried that they're coming for you? What are the, what do you feel when you're leading an elite 800 meter race?
4: I think you have, I think you have all those emotions, you know, of course, you're gonna always know who's in your race. So you, you know, you know, you're gonna know um, how certain individuals race, and you're gonna know their strengths. And if you can kind of gauge off of that and know that I know my strengths, I know their strengths, I think I can hold these guys off. Um, when you're racing against the elite guys, it's a little different because you know everyone has a kick, and um, everyone is gunning for you. So you are running with a little bit of. Like, oh gosh, they're coming. I'm scared a little bit, just a little bit of fear, you know, in there. But at the same time, if you're going to lead it, you're going to have to go and, and lead it. There's no, you know, second guessing. Like, uh, I should have not did this today. You know, I mean, once you, uh, it's kind of like, once you commit to it, you just, you just have to do it, you know? And so once, you know, once I get it, to, I mean, to the 200 mark and I commit, I'm committed and there's no backing off after that.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's uh, definitely, I remember watching your races and sometimes it paid off beautifully and sometimes you commit and just, you did not have it that lost hundred, uh, but it was, it was always interesting.
4: Yes, sir. You know, I, I you know, the way I think of it is, is good race or bad race. I feel like anytime I'm out there, I, I make it a race, you know, I try to make it a race. I try to make it to where it's never gonna be like a tactical event. It's gonna be where everyone's gonna have to run everyone's gonna have to hurt uh, that's just the way I always wanted it to be. I don't ever want to get out of a race and feel like I have more left. I always want to you know get in there and be like that was that was everything I had that day you know
0: So you said you know you always knew who was in your race who was coming for you. who was the one guy in your career who you'd be most worried about? You know, you get to six hundred to go and you're like, oh man, I know that guy's gonna make his move. Mm.
4: Um if I have to be honest, I would have to say in his prime Aman, it was Muhammad Aman. He was just one of those like notorious kickers, man. It's just one of those guys I just I had a hard time beating, you know. I would like I would always be there with him or I would be ahead of him. And he was just always there on my tail. He's one of those guys where in other races internationally I can open up a gap on these guys, you know? And once I open up that gap, uh it's very rare they're gonna come back to me. Um with Amon, it's a little different because even when I tried to open that gap on the backstretch, like, you know, he would immediately answer that move that I would make. When usually it, you know, you know, when I make the move on the backstretch, you know, most guys won't answer it because, you know, it's a little too early for them to go. But Amon would answer it. And so when we get to the 600 and he's still there with me, I'm like, now I got to hold this guy off and he's the kicker, you know, I'm, I'm not a kicker. <laughs> so, um, you know, he's one of those guys. I just had a hard time beating, And I knew that if he was with me at the turn, it was most likely he was going to take that race.
0: Yeah. I mean, he was a, he was a great runner, 2013 world champion. And I remember there were a few years when, even when Rudisha was in his prime, that would be seemed like once a year, Mo Amon would get him. And if, like maybe at an end of season meet, and if Rudy shows the greatest front runner of all time, the greatest 800 meter runner of all time, you know if he's losing to this guy, you know he's pretty special talent.
4: It is, you know, it's you know guys like Amon and these guys where if you if you're going to beat these guys in a big meet, you're going to have to run big times. You know, you're not going to be able to run 145 and beat this guy. You're going to have to go 142 or or 143 in order to you know get a win on on this guy. So um You know, you have to know that if you're in that race with them, you know, it's going to be a race. It's going to be a quick race too.
0: Yeah. So you also raced against Radisha, you know, that 2012 Olympic final where you said your PR, I think everyone except Osagi ran PRs in that race. Uh, I mean, obviously we know he's a huge talent. He's got this incredible speed, but was there anything that in your mind just set the guy apart? I mean, he's generally regarded as, as the greatest 800 runner of all time. What made him special?
4: Um, I think it was just his confidence, his elegant running style. Um, he, he, um, he just knew, like he knew his body. He knew, he knew like what to expect from his body and how it performed and what it could do. Um, so he was one of those runners who, you know, just knew his like knew what he can do and he can pick a day to do it, you know, you know, it wasn't like it was going to be, um, you know, one of those things where it's like, oh, 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 look, I ran quick today. Surprise! I think he knew he wanted to do that in London, and I think he knew he, that he had it in him to do it. So, um, he's just one of those, you know, you know, one of the special runners who can, you know, turn it on when he wants to and turn it off when he wants to, and he can make running look easy and effortlessly. So, I was watching him through the rounds, and I can tell that he was going to be ready for something big even, you know, even then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think in track and field, there's no defense and, you know, in football or basketball, you might be able to come up with a game plan to stop someone like that or limit them. Uh, But if he decides he's going to run 140 from the front, there's nothing really you or anyone else can do about it. Right.
4: Yeah. I mean, there's nothing you can do. And that's why, you know, at, at the end of that race, I don't think anyone was really, you know, disappointed because of what happened, you know. Now it, now if it would have been a normal time, one forty two, one forty three, then we would have been like, oh man, you know, maybe we could have got him if we were on our best day. That was everyone's best day, you know. So even on our best day, we couldn't beat this guy. So um uh, you, you you know, you just have to take it for what it is and know that, you know, we were racing greatness that day and I mean there's no man on earth that would have, you know, you know, beat him on that day, even on their best day.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, you got fourth in that race. You remain the fastest fourth place finisher in any race in history with that time one forty two eighty two. So are you? You know, you said you sort of a, seemed at peace with it because you you know you ran as best as you could. You, you ran a huge a big PR mm-hmm. now, but you didn't get the medal, and that would have medaled in every other Olympic final. I mean, are you okay with that now, or is there still that twinge? Like, man, it would have you know. I, I wish I had medaled in that race.
4: Yeah, you know, it's I mean it still hurts to know that I was that close. Um and only because um I went into that race with no real plan. Um I I just made it and I was like I have nothing to lose. So just going there and race I didn't know if I wanted to race from the front. I didn't know if I wanted to race in the middle. I I didn't know what position I was going to be in because I didn't know how everyone else was going to race, you know? Because everyone else in that race was good, I mean they were amazing talents, so I didn't really know what you know what was going to happen when the gun went off and um, so for well you know me coming down that last hundred, I felt like I could maybe get that spot, you know that third spot, but I think what happened early on in that race was I got a little bit indecisive, and when everyone you know um, when the front group made their move on the back stretch. I didn't. I didn't answer it right away. I kind of waited a little bit because I wasn't confident that I was going to be able to hold that. Since we were already on a very fast pace, I'm like, I'll let them go and hopefully they'll come back to me. And um, you know, once I got to like the like the 600 mark, I noticed they weren't coming back as as quick. So I was like, okay, now I got to start making a move now, and hopefully I can you know gain some ground. But I I just think I waited a little bit too long, and that k- possibly k- you know could have cost me a medal i mean it seems
0: like the issue there though is you were put to answer a question very and that's one of the things that's great about the 800 is it's split seconds decision positioning all in 100 seconds it makes it a fascinating race but you were put in a situation no one else has really ever been in like all the guys that's uncharted territory running that fast and then still having to make a move off of it that sort of thing i mean it must just be tough in the moment to have to make that sort of split
4: second decision It is, it's, you know, really it's, it's, it's a thing I've never done before up to that point. You know, I, I never got to, you know, the 600 and 115 and then had to kick off of it. You know, that's, that was, you know, it was all new to me to, you know, to have to do that. You know, I'm used to getting to the 600 at 116 and then coming off the turn and then start tying up a little bit. There it was like, oh, I'm here. This is the quickest I've ever ran in my life. And now I have to kick again. Um, so it was it was definitely different territories. It felt different. Um it just yeah, I mean, it just it was different. It was a different it was a different world. I was in a different realm. I was in, I think everybody felt that. That, you know, everybody hit times that they had never hit before. So it brought everybody's bodies to a new, you know, territory. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to your college days at
0: USC. You were coached by Laszlo Tabori, who was a great Hungarian runner of the 1950s. He was actually tied the 1500 meter world record all the way back in 1955. What was it like training under him?
4: Oh man, Laszlo was, he was amazing. You know, he was a, a very good guy. He, I think he took to me like very early on, you know, I think he saw, um, you know, something in me that he loved and liked. So I think I was his main, you know, um, you know, main athlete, main pupil that he really wanted to put under his wing. And, um, he really wanted me to do everything old school, like kind of how, you know, he did it. Um, and the training that we did, um, was very old school. Uh, we did everything like, um, the Eagle A method. So it's, a uh, it's a lot of repetitions. Um, it's, uh, you know, know, I'm really no rest, you know, everything's active recovery and, um, just that type of thing. So, um, you know, just being under him and knowing like the history of, of Laszlo and everything that he's done. And then for him to be coaching me up and, and really, and really making me a great runner, you know, I'm giving me the confidence and building me up and, you know, you know, you know, having someone there almost like a father figure, um, it was great to be under him.
0: Yeah, the the egoi system is something I've I've read about it, and I know I, I think Kadivas Robinson also used it during his career. But it's always so, sort of strange to me because it's so different from a lot of other training methods. And I was wondering, like, can you explain it further? Like, what would a typical practice under this system look like for you?
4: Yeah, so eye method is, you know, you're doing you're doing you know, type of workouts that a miler would do as well as you're doing intervals of like sprint workouts, but you're doing a lot of mileage, you know? So in a typical workout, you're going to be doing at least eight miles of just running of, you know, pure running. But the Eloy method is almost like a, um, it's almost like a ladder, you know, going up and then going back down and then maybe going up again, you know, but, you know, but you're doing everything at a, at a very high uh, intensity. Um, so, you know, initially, like I didn't really know what the Eagle A method was until I got to Laszlo. And then in later on in my career, when I got to Johnny, we kind of kept that same, you know, um, the same methods because they all trained under the same umbrella, which made me comfortable because I was already under that already. And, um, you know, I mean, with Eagle A method, sometimes it's, you know it's hit or miss. It's not for everyone. I can tell you that. I've had a lot of training partners that have tr- tried it and um it's just, it's it's not for everyone. Like everybody um everybody's body will not adapt to it. And it is hit or miss as far as getting as far as when you're racing. Um sometimes you can be overworked or sometimes you'll be just right, you know. So um I think that's why you see a lot of my career it was like a hit or miss a lot of times, you know, and and when I'm hit and when I'm on, I'm on and, and when I'm off, you know, I'm off. So, Did,
0: and are you at the track? Like, are they regular easy runs? Do you do long runs or are you at the track every day into the system?
4: Oh yeah. The, I mean, you no, know, we're doing long runs. So, uh, with our, our training was, uh, was like four times a week on the track. Um, rest of the time would be on the road. So, um, you would do like your long distance runs. Maybe it's like an eight miler or, uh, or something like that. You know, so we def- we definitely packed on the mileage and and kind of things like that. So I think it made it a little different from other training groups to the point where we were doing a little bit of everything.
0: And when you're on the track, I mean, you said sometimes you do like eight miles. Is is that all continuous? Like, are you just, you're just continuing to circle the track and jogging between sort of the reps. So how exactly does that work?
4: Yeah, so... Well, um, you know, with the Eagle Eye method, it's very little rest. So, if you run a quarter and forty nine, you'll jog one hundred, and then you'll jog one hundred back. You know, do that quarter again, and maybe you'll do, and maybe you'll do three sets of two or three sets of three. It just kind of depends on what the workout is that day. So, uh, like everything is active rest. So you're jogging in between each interval you're coming back around and maybe you have like a half a lap jog. So you're jogging and then you'll run right into the next interval, which may be on a hard 300 or a 600 or something like that. So you never stop running until the workouts over. (laughs) So are those, were those sessions draining? They were, you know, you get used to them after a while. I mean, after all the years that I've done it, I just, it was just, you know, very natural to me. Uh, But the first couple of years of doing it, yeah, it was, it was definitely, um, you know, very draining and, And days I would, you know, I would have words with Laszlo and they weren't very nice. Like, you know, I need rest. I, you're killing me right now. And, um, you know, there'd be times where you just, you know, you just want to dog the work. So he'll tell you to run a time and you, you know, like I'll purposely run slow just because I want to make him mad or something, you know, (laughs) you know, it's just one of those things.
0: Yeah. And he was in like, he was in his seventies when he was coaching you. Like, did he make you do any other old school stuff?
4: Uh, just as far as like, if you wanted to get water, he wouldn't, you know, he would say, put a little dab on your tongue and then get back out there. You don't want you to drink. Um, he didn't really want you to go to the bathroom during, you know, I'm um, going to work out if you're going to use the bathroom, go before. And if you're in the bathroom for too long, he'll, you know, he'll come find you <laughs> he'll come find you in the locker room, you, you know, you know, and, and there was a couple of times after, you know, after intervals, a couple of my buddies, we would go in the locker room and we would just hide in there just to get a just a little bit more rest, you know, for the next interval, because you know what's coming up. And we're like, let's just take a minute or two just to rest a minute, man, because I am so tired. And so we would hide in there sometimes. Um, And then other, you know, just like, you know, if we got injuries, you know, injuries, um, he would say, oh, just put ice on it or, um, you know, you can run through it. You know, you run through that pain and then it won't hurt anymore. So it was like old school things like that where, like, you don't need medicine. You don't need all this other stuff. You don't need doctors. Your body's gonna heal on its own, <laughs> and I think that's how they did.
0: Yeah, you, you mentioned that one of the your regrets, though, from your career is that you, you know, you sort of didn't take recovery or treating your body a little bit more seriously. Do you think it might have had that its roots in in that sort of system?
4: I don't know. It could have been. You know, I mean, in college, I was always wrapped up like a horse on my leg. I had I had the uh, um, shin splints and all that stuff, stress fracture, and all that stuff. I think throughout my whole career at SC and uh, I found a way to to just run through it. You know, every race, every workout, I would take myself up. I would get the right running shoes. I would get the right, um, or, um, you know, orthopedics, orthotics in my shoes and stuff just to alleviate any pain that was coming. Um, so in college I was able to, you know, really run through that stuff and make it work. um, you know, the pro circuit was a little different just being that it wasn't that same injury anymore. And it was a little bit more intense as a pro.
0: So you eventually turn pro and you link up with Johnny Gray and that's sort of where you have your most success. What was, he's obviously a legend in the sport, four-time Olympic finalist, bronze medalist at the Olympic games in 1992, American record holder for 34 years. What what did you learn from him? What were your biggest takeaways from training under Johnny Gray?
4: Uh, man, Johnny. Well, I mean, for the uh, the beginning, he was so hard to get a hold of. I didn't know how to get a hold of this guy. I really wanted him to coach me like directly out of college, and I just didn't know how to get a hold of him. And uh, he, and you know, when I did, um, I think we just meshed, you know, so well because he told me what you know what he wanted me to do, what was um, you know, you know what the plan was, what he um, expected from me, and we just kind of went from there. It blossomed because, you know, like anything that he told me to do, I you know I did it with no questions asked. It didn't matter how hard the workout was; I was going to do it because this is Johnny. This is a guy, you know, who's an icon in the sport, and um, it's someone that I really wanted to be under. So knowing that you know, you know, he's been there before he's been at the highest level and the best. I knew in order to get to where I wanted to be, I needed to be with the best. I knew that he was the best. So I needed him to guide me to that. And being under him brought um, the confidence that I needed. So
0: you made the world championship team while you were still in college at USC in 2007. And then the next few years, you know, you're, you're on the scene, but your big breakthrough doesn't come until 2012 when you go from your PR entering the year was 14523 and then you end up running that 142 in the Olympic final so PR by almost 3 seconds uh which is you know a lot when you're already in the 140s what how do how do you explain that like what what contributed to your breakout season that year
4: I mean to be honest I can't even tell you what what changed uh my workouts were always were always how they were. In 2010, 2011, my workouts were amazing. They never translated into my races. And I could never figure out why. Me and Johnny would be like, you're you're doing these workouts and they're crazy workouts. I've never seen anybody do these type of workouts. But yet your times are not converting to to what you do in in the workouts. And I didn't understand what was going on. Even leading into the trials in 12, I was still tying up in the last hundred and only run 145. So even going into the trials, I was still unconfident that I could even make it to the line, you know? Um, But I think the difference that year was that I got in the weight room the whole year of 2012. And I put on like 10 pounds of muscle, which I've never been in the weight room in my whole career um, before that. So um, I think that probably could have played a role in and me um, being able to, you know, hold my composure and have the strength.
0: So, yeah, th- this happened 2012, you were 27 years old, mm-hmm. which, you know, is not old, but for an 800 meter runner to make that jump, it's sort of on the older side. And one of the, I mean, one of the things that always comes up on the Let's Run message board is so, if someone makes some improvement, they're like, oh, this guy must be on drugs. Yeah. Did you ever have, did people, was that suspicion ever voiced to you? Like, did you ever hear those rumblings?
4: I never got a voice to me, but I knew that, you know, people were suspicious of the fact that, oh, he just dropped, you know, he dropped down, uh, you know, down at 142, um, you know, 143, just like that. Um, I think I think the only thing that probably, um, you know, posed maybe, you know, maybe I'm a clean runner is that I've always been good. You know, I've always been, con- you know, I've always been the runner that was, on the cusp. I wasn't, you know, someone who kinda you know just came out the woodworks. I mean, I was good in high school, I was good in college. Um I just it just, you know, took me a little bit longer to get to that world class that I needed to be at, you know, and um and for some people, you know, it's late and sometimes it's early and then they don't have a long career, you know? I mean for me luckily, um I was always relevant, but I made my career longer because I broke out a little later than other guys.
0: So 2012, that year you make the Olympic team, your first Olympic team and collapse the track in tears. And if anyone hasn't seen the race, they need to need to watch the race, but they also need to go back and watch the video of you like sort of celebrating because it's just, it's so it's just incredible to watch because the, the emotions are pouring out of you. And obviously anytime anyone becomes an Olympian for the first time, it's it's special. But this one really seemed to mean something extra special to you. And why why do you think that was?
4: Um, I think it was just all of the um pressure that I had on myself and everyone else had on me. I mean, like even um, before the call room, I, I you know, I had guys that I looked up to who were like, You're gonna make this team. I had Lagat actually come up to me before I went in the tent and was like, I you know i know you're gonna make this team i know you're gonna make this team Solomon. i believe in you i had LaShawn Merritt even come up to me and tell me hey you got this man i know you're gonna make this team so i have all these, you know you know you know all these guys that i look up to and they're in my corner and i'm saying like what do they see in me that i don't see in myself you know i mean did they not watch me uh, last race in canada where you know where i only ran 145 i don't like i don't have the a standard yet you know you know how do they see this in me you know so I had a lot of um, pressure on myself, only because I was also looking back at '08 when I just missed the team, and that that one hurt. And I was telling myself even before I got to um, the tr- um, the trials in 2012, I said, "If I don't make this team this year, I'm most likely gonna end this run. I'm gonna stop. You know, I can't keep living like this. I wasn't making a lot of money. You know, my contract wasn't that big at the time." Um, so I was, uh, you know, a struggling athlete, and I needed to either make a change. If I wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't going to be running. I was going to have to do something where I can actually make some real money, you know, and and that was a viable option for me. So this race had every, it, you know, it had my livelihood on the line, pretty much. How much were you making before the trials? Before the trials, I signed. Well, okay, my first contract I signed was it was no more than 20,000, you know? So I was literally, I I had to work a part-time job as well as run. So that was very rough, as you know, um, trying to manage the time to work and, e- and even to get off of work to go to the trial. So I actually, I think a couple of weeks before the trials, I quit my job. I was working at Abercrombie. I quit that job just so I can, you know, go out there and be out there for that week because they weren't gonna let me offer that long. So I said, you know what? I quit. This is more important, you know? And and the rest is history after that. <laughs> yeah. That's betting on yourself right there. It is. So wait, how much and like
0: how much the next year you're you've run 142, you're in Olympic finals, how much does your contract jump up that next year?
4: Man, my contract. so once so that whole I so once I make the team, that whole year, I hit every bonus that we had put in my contract there was not one bonus in there that i didn't hit every bonus in there so after that my base went up man like six times higher than what i was making originally you know so i i i mean i was living comfortable man i was living good and i was happy with it and um yeah i was just just everything started to kind of come together and mesh together like this is where this is what i should have been at a long time ago
0: now you know, I want to go forward from a high moment of your career to probably one of the low ones, 2015 USA final. You're leading through 700 meters. Uh, as you said you would before the race, I think I remembered, I don't know if I was in the interview, but I definitely remember hearing about it where you said you were going to try to go to the twilight zone in that final. Mm-hmm. And then you get passed by Simmons, you get passed by Sawinski and Lotsam, and then that's just it. You crumble to the track. I think... You, you know, you finished in 308, 40, 70, sorry 308.74, so congratulations. I believe that is a record that will never be broken, the <laughs> slowest time in a USA 800 final. But, like, when you look back on that race, can you, you, you know, you're sort of smiling about it now. Can you laugh, or do you still look back with sort of uh, disappointment or shame? or Like, what do you think about when you think about that race?
4: Yeah, man. I mean, to be honest, when I look I don't even watch that race, to be honest. I think I've only seen that race. Maybe twice,
1: mm-hmm.
4: maybe twice. Um, I don't like going back to that race. Um, it's very uncomfortable. It's very, you know, it's embarrassing for me to be honest. It was, you know, even going into that race, we were contemplating whether we even wanted to, you know, even go to USA's. You know, Johnny had asked me the week before we left. He said, you know, do you want to go? You know, do you think you can race? You know, because this was the time where I think. Like like the whole year, I, I only was able to run one race. Um, I raced New York before that, and I got through one lap and I stopped. I just could not get through it. Uh, my workouts were all cut short every time. I couldn't really get in in workouts. I was not fit. Um, I just had to make you know work with you know with, with what I could do. Um, and I told Johnny, I said, you know what, Johnny, you know what do we have to lose? You know, just go there and. And then we'll see what happens. I'll just run and we'll see, you know. So we went there running on pure pure heart and talent, you know. Um but yeah, so when we actually went into it and I said, I'm gonna take it to the you know, the gray zone, that was a tactic. It was a tactic, it was a scare tactic. It was supposed to make everyone kinda worry about, you know, is he ready or is he not ready? You know, no one knows because he's not, you know, I mean the last race he did was a while back so we don't really know what shape he's in and and at the time I wasn't posting videos of my workouts and stuff like that so it was just to keep everybody on their toes but deep down I knew that I wasn't ready for that race.
0: Do do you think I mean go if you could go back would you run it differently or would you try to use the same strategy?
4: Yeah yeah I I I would uh I would definitely you know run a little more conserved I you know it wasn't my plan to take it out that way, if I could have chose my own race plan, it would have been to um race a little more conservative, maybe you know the first lap in 51, and then I would have been able to you know kind of pick up on the backstretch and I think I could have easy, easily made that team if I would have just ran a conservative race um you know, winning time was well like 144 or something like that, I think um by Nick um and then they're yeah, 144 53 yeah, and then 144 yeah
0: 145 35 was lots yeah. lockson he made the team in third and actually ended up clayton murphy technically made the team 145 59 and fourth cuz nick uh declined his spot
4: yeah and see i i think i i think i opened up with that at mount sac that year or i ran a 600 but i i mean 145 for me was um just a you know like opening race for me would be that type of time so i knew after the race i knew that i was just thinking to myself like why can't i just ran a different race <laughs> it would have turned out so much different i know it it would have felt more uncomfortable than when i was fit but i knew that i could make it to that line running that way versus running the way i ran it that day
0: yeah and then you know after that there was a big break between usa's and worlds that year so you would have had two more months to get in shape for maybe uh one more run at it. And then next year, the trials, I mean, we don't need to dive into humongous detail about this. I think, you know, people, if they look, if they read about it, essentially, you know, you had the lead, you let up early, it was a rookie mistake, mm. but that's one you, you now, unfortunately you, ha- you have to live with it because that was sort of your last major race, lost major meet. Like mm. this is a, it, it, how difficult is that to live with? That was sort of your last chance at the Olympics. your lost chance to do something big. And it, it, ended because you made this rookie mistake.
4: Yeah. You know, it, I mean, that one sucked more than any other year that, I mean, that one was the one where I knew that it was my, it was, it was my own loss. Like I caused myself to not make that team, you know, even not being at, at, um, at, at, you know, my 100%, I, I, I could have made that team and I should have made that team. Um, but I got too confident and, um, you know, my competitors, I didn't, you know, I didn't really take them seriously how I should have. And, uh, you know, it, you know, cost me in the end, you know, um, I was, I was, you know, really the whole time I was thinking about what I was going to do in the semis. I was like, how, you know, how can I um, save up enough, to uh you know get ready for the semis and the finals so my mind was already not even on that race that day it was i'm already looking ahead at the next race and i think that was a mistake on my part of uh you know trying to look ahead
0: i mean yeah that's a it's a uh, sliding doors moment because charles jock beat you out for the final spot to advance by a thousandth of a second or a few thousandths. And he ends up getting the third spot on the team against all odds, which is just you know it's very interesting to think about. How does that all play out? If he doesn't make it through, you know, do you make do you get that third spot? Does someone else get it? It's it's just a really interesting what if.
4: Yeah, I mean, that was definitely some, and and, and, and you know, that was one of the things I was thinking about. I was like, wow, what Jock beat me out for the last spot, and it just so happens he's the one that makes the team as well. You know, so you're thinking like you know, could that have been me?
0: <laughs> so I want to do a couple quick hitters here before I let you go. Uh, favorite place to race.
4: Um, I would say Monaco. We like Monaco. Why? It's a magical track, man. I feel like if you go there, there's, I mean, the sky is the limit, you know, I think everyone, I mean, everyone, you know, who runs there, they run fast. It's, 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 um, I don't know what it is. It's something magical about that track that when you run there, you feel like, you're going to run best.
0: Well, yeah, you did. You got a PR there in 2012, and then you uh, you won the Monaco Diamond League in 2013, one of the few Americans to win it. Well, not as, not as rare anymore with Donovan Brajic, but <laughs> back then, yeah. it was pretty impressive.
4: Yes. Yeah,
0: favorite person to race against?
4: My favorite person to race against? Uh, who was my favorite person to race against? If I had to pick one that's uh, my favorite person to race again. I'll probably say Swinski. you know Sewinsky's a good guy man. I, I like him. We raced a lot over the years, and um you know he's just you know he's a genuine guy. He always keeps me on my toes. so you know whenever I'm in a race with him, um it's always it's always a race, you know. I would say yeah, i would I would say either him or Nick, but you know, with me and Nick, it's um it's a little different there i I'd, I'd really only want to race him at the big ones (laughs) I don't want to race them every week (laughs) you know
0: (laughs) what about favorite runner to watch now
4: favorite runner to watch now Mm. in 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 any event
0: yeah any event
4: let me see who's my favorite runner to watch I haven't really watched a lot lately um I mean I'm really interested to see what Donovan's gonna do um Like I kind of want to see what he can do in the miles, well, you know, fifteen hundred and stuff like that. Because I know, I mean, I know eventually he's going to break the world record in eight hundred, but I would love to see um, what this guy can do at the higher distances, you know, to see if he can kind of be one of those dual athletes who can go and uh, and you know, win an eight hundred and a and a fifteen if the um, you know the schedule permits.
0: Wow, so you you're just casually dropping in that oh, I know he's gonna break the world record. That's I mean, that's a big I mean, that's statement a, to mate. What makes you so sure?
4: I mean, that's a given. <laughs> I mean, if you've seen how this guy's been racing and how comfortable he looks, it almost like he almost looks as easy as how Katerina Semenya looks when she's running the eight hundred. It looks like she's holding back and only giving you just enough, you know. Um I know he has a lot more in the tank because he you know uh when he broke the american record he didn't even do it from the front um so you know you know just imagine if he had a rabbit and he went through at like at like a like a 49 low to 48 high and uh you know to see him bring it back uh, i i see it happening um i don't know when but i see it happening
0: and you think i mean this is a guy who famously does not enjoy distance runs. He's never run longer than I think eight point one miles. But you think he might have the strength to move up to the fifteen hundred and then go through you know six races in ten days, do that double?
4: I think he, f- I think um, he's found uh you know what works for him. I think he's found it uh, with Oregon Project, and um, well, they're not Oregon Project anymore. But I think he's f- he um he's now doing more distance than what he has done, and I think it was just a gradual build up. Because uh, when he came to our group, I think it was a little too too much at one time. And um, I don't think he was ready for the workload that he was going to get with us at the time. And, and I talked to him upon his, you know, uh, his move out to Oregon. And he just said, yeah, you know, gradually, you know, they made like a program for me to where I can do a little bit of distance here and I just gradually build up. And I think that's what he's been doing over these um, two or three years has just been gradually building up his mileage to the point to where now he's much, much stronger than he was when he was with us.
0: All right. And then lost lost one here, 2021 U.S. Olympic 800 meter team. <laughs> Who do you think's on it?
4: Oh man, mm, that's a rough. Uh, um, all right. So Donovan, uh, probably Bryce Hopple. And third is gonna be, I think that's gonna be a dark horse. I think, I think, I think any year in eight hundred men's or women's, um, the third spot is always open. There's, it's, it's never. I don't think there's ever a name that's a guarantee in that third spot. Uh, one and two are usually, you know, givens, and the third is gonna be a fight. Um, it, it just depends who stays healthy. You know, uh, like I know Boris Barron, he's coming back. Um, you know, you have Clayton Murphy out there. You have Isaiah, who, Isaiah I, Harris, Isaiah Harris. Um, uh, you know, you, I mean, you have these guys, and then you're gonna have some college guys coming up as well. So you know, you always—I mean—you have these college kids. You always have to look out for because they're always coming out. <laughs> they're always coming up, so you can't count them out as well.
0: Yeah, there's there's always a college kid every year in the 800, and you know, he doesn't always make it, but uh, makes things interesting. Oh yeah. All right, well. Dwayne, this was uh, this was really awesome to chat and catch up and get your thoughts on your career. You know, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk to me today, but it was a pleasure having you on.
4: Hey man, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate everyone else. I appreciate everybody who's been following me over the years. And uh, you know, this I'm mean, to the next um, chapter of my life. We've got a
2: special guest right now, Nick McFowles, the co-founder of the Beer Mile. World Classic is joining us in this Saturday, July 4th, right after the Nathan's hot dog eating contest. The Beer Mile World Classic will be unveiled on Let's Run.com. It's a virtual beer mile this year. But hey, it's pretty cool. This is like a world championship, Nick, right? The first ever world championship on let's run.com.
1: Uh, on let's run.com, but this is our sixth one. So you know you know, like bringing the beer mile to the world. That's our motto.
2: A lot. The beer mile world classic, I guess, started in what, 2015?
1: And the thing about the beer mile, and this year we're virtual, but that's how all beer miles kind of were before we did public ones. FlowTrack obviously had uh, theirs, uh, and ours started right around the same time. And before, people would just go to the track with their friends and and run a beer mile, record it, send it into beermile.com, and get graded. So this isn't much different than what life was like before uh, the public beer miles started. So it's a kind of a, a tip to the history of the, the beer
2: mile. Maybe we're getting too big picture basics of a beer mile explain it you know four beers four laps
1: So let's just talk about the biggest things obviously it's a mile So it's four laps plus 10 meters then that 10 meters is important because that's where you drink your beer You're that extra 9.3 x meters and that's called the chug zone And so every ounce of liquid that you consume has to be in that chug zone So you start the race with a beer and you start every subsequent lap with a beer so that, that's what kind of separates like a, a great runner from a great beer miler is what happens in that 40 meters of running or walking and how fast they can process that beer and how fast they can run with the beer in their stomach. So rule one is it's a mile. There's a chug zone that people drink their beer. But the other thing um, that's that, that factors in is that you can't have a reversal, which means like, you know, like the beer comes back up. So we penalize that. And so
2: And That means vomiting for the uninformed
1: so I, I think we have to, you know, we have to watch what we kind of say. We're trying to, you know, appeal to a, a wider crowd. But yeah, so uh, vomiting, yes. If you vomit, you you get you have to run an extra lap, and that's like that's that will take you out of the race. You know, these races are usually you know full feet. You know, all the medalists are within you know ten seconds or so. So that that's that'll put you out. It's almost like a
2: disqualification at this level. So let's talk a little bit about this year's event. You guys were going to have an in-person event as you always do, and then. COVID-19 up into the world and the beer miles as well. So how did you guys pivot to having this virtual event? It seems like it is one event that you can't, can't hold virtually, but. Yeah, I think
1: like it, a light went off. We were watching the Swedish, the Swedish beer mile team, you know, is like one of the up and coming teams that they're always a threat. They're always on the podium and they're always a threat to win. And they were doing beer miles through the early parts in Sweden's rules were a little bit more lax. And things were starting to loosen up around the world. And the and light bulb went off and said, we could do this. How do we do it? And when do we want to do it? And we, we knew we'd, like July 4th would be a good day uh, to have it just because of like the hot dog eating contest. And it's a time when a lot of Americans take some time out. But we are a worldwide sport. And, and, and having 4th of July on a Saturday just made sense for us to do it. So we had to just kind of figure out how do we get everyone in? How do we spread the word? How do we? Um, how much time do we need to edit and put this together, and kind of put our resources into uh, into that?
2: I mean, the race in some ways has already happened, right? They had till June twenty seventh to submit the entry. They could enter as many times as they wanted, and there were rules on filming it and making sure they're following all the rules. So this is so probably a yeah. let's run first. We're covering an event that's already happened. I don't know the results. Do you know the results? Like, I guess you don't want to tell I, I us. Do.
1: I'm one of uh, maybe five people. The athletes don't. I mean, the athletes know what they've done. Um, The international teams have shared within their country, but uh, we've been really secretive in not letting the athletes know. So when they, if they pop up on screen, they don't know where they're going to finish. They don't know how much money they're going to win. And they don't know, like one of the things we put a high priority on is the Kingston and Queens Cup, which are the men's and women's titles. So we score three men and two women and put it together um, in a team title. So no one knows. And one of the big stories was like a lot of the traditionally, like America's won the last um, three titles, but a couple of our podium winners were out this year. So wanted to see if anyone else could fill their spot. And that, that's kind of one of the stories coming in to see if there's any new talent that's coming into the beer mile.
2: And so the thinking was, I mean, at one o'clock on Saturday, you guys are going to have a really well-produced event. It'll look cool because if you're trying to film like five people running beer miles all at once live, it really wouldn't work, right?
1: Yeah, and it's really hard to do it live just because like in the past, Corey Belmore has really run away with the event. And so he would get so far ahead and the focus would be on his running. This year, like this is, if there's a new story. Uh, Belmore's not, Belmore's injured. So it's really opening up the men's uh, the men's race for a, for a new champion. So uh, that that's kind of, you're hearing it here first uh, from Let's Run. Uh, Belmore's out. There will be a new men's champion this year, but from a production standpoint, being able to, you know, focus like, uh, you know, we're going to so almost like a zoom call. And so like, you know, there's four screens and we're able to watch everyone in their chug zone, kind of doing the chugging. And that's what a lot of people are watching for, but it, but at the end of the day, it's still a running race and, and, um, that's the other part of it, but it's not like any race that most people have seen before.
2: Did Corey submit or his time's not, he just couldn't do it because he's injured or?
1: Uh, he just can't, he can't run. Like, um, I think it's a stress fracture and like, look, the beer miles not worth like he has aspirations that are bigger than beer mile world classic champion Uh next year. You know, this year is supposed to be an Olympic year. Uh We've act, you know, we, we've seen a lot of injuries this year, surprisingly through, from a lot of our elites more than you would think in an off year like this, but there, there, there has been a lot of injuries um but for belmore you know it's you know the focus is tokyo 2021 and just taking a risk for a beer mile not worth it not worth it and so that means that the other people from team canada really have to step up if they want to win the team title because that's a big when you only score three people avoid a you know losing that number one like that is uh, is trouble
2: so who are the strong teams historically i assume the u.s canada the swedes who else
1: uh, in Australia, so our original uh, Beer Mile World Classic, we called it the uh, the Beer Mile of the Century, is the first time, um, we, you know, a, a, the sub-five-minute beer milers got together, um, and that was Josh Harris from Australia, Nielsen, who was the first under five, and Lewis Lewis Kent, who eventually won the event. The, those teams were Australia, um, Canada, and the U.S. were the traditionally three strong teams. Sweden is, like, the, the next in line is the, the fourth. Um, and then we have developing countries like uh, Norway, Germany. Uh, we're seeing a Dutch team for the first time. And uh, England, England's always very good, but they only submitted uh, one elite athlete this year.
2: What about Kenya? With, with no prize money for the pro runners, you guys maybe should branch out to Africa, get some Kenyans, Ethiopians. We would,
1: we would love to. And I think it's like, um, uh, it might not even be the fastest Kenyan you know uh, running. If, you know, as you know, it doesn't always, it's not always the fastest people that are the fastest beer milers. Like you take someone like uh, Garrett Collin and Chris Robertson, they didn't even run in in NCAAs. They were on their club teams at at, uh, Michigan and Iowa state. So there has to be a Kenyan out there. I don't know um, how we get the word out to them. Uh, I would love to have a Kenyan. I would love to have more Asian participation. Uh, We're starting to grow in Europe finally with, you know, with, with teams, you know, with our, with our first Dutch team, like I said, and in Scotland and England and Norway and Sweden. So uh, would love to have that more international exposure out there, and that would be great. So that that's the goal, but um, hopefully we can get some of those teams soon.
2: And before we got on this call, you were telling me because you don't have to fly in athletes that you guys actually have more prize money this year.
1: Winning the uh, Beer Mile World Classic in the past, uh, you might win like 300, where uh, in 10th place might be 150. We wanted to use that to subsidize the travel of, of People, we try to like. We've really tried to grow the sport, so it's not really necessarily putting a, a big prize up just for the winner. Uh, we really wanted to spread that out. So we have um, individual money um, for men and women. We have uh, team money for the top two teams. We have masters money, um, and we put some money out for for elites as well if they decide to do it. And so we really haven't seen anyone take that bait on the elite side yet.
2: You put enough money, and they'll, they'll they'll do something. But they they also wouldn't. There's no way those guys beat. Corey Bellarmore. I mean, Corey's trying to make the Olympics for himself for Canada, but I mean, he's run 433 yeah. for a beer mile. That's crazy. And you were saying, you know, until you guys started, no one, no sub two, five minute miles had, had ever raced before. And now he's lowered the record 27 seconds, which is crazy. You
1: know, like, uh, let me tell you a little story about like the first time we had Bellmore race, we we were in London for the 2017 world classic. And we had, um, you know, uh, Shirk had just. Broken, broken the world record. He'd run 4:47. We're, we're two nights out from the event. Uh, we have our our you know our pre-event get together, and you know every, everyone kind of uh, tips back a little. I woke up uh, the next morning to find out that Belmore had broken the world record. And as a meet director, you know you're kind of promoting. You have the world record holder, and there's a guy in Windsor, Canada, that just destroyed it. He he had taken it, the world record from 4:47. Um, to 439 and no one else has run under 440. And that's kind of like the mat. you know, if you think it's like, kind of compared to like a 350 mile, it's just a, you know, a kind of a magical barrier. So we ended up calling him uh, at his place, got a hold of him, just put on a full court press, flew him out. He got in that, and the next day he was there in London. And then the next day uh, he ran, um, he ran five seconds faster um, in uh, 434. And then he ran 343 in San Francisco at another event we put on. And, That was probably like, I I don't know if if you've ever produced a world record. I never thought it would happen to me, Um, but it was like, it it was euphoric. We were going crazy.
2: I mean, this year you guys, you don't have him, but you got Chris Robertson. Is he still the U.S. record holder? Four forty-six.
1: Yeah. And if you had, if there wasn't a, an animal named Corey Beldmore out there, Chris Robertson would be the guy that everyone was, was talking about. He's been, he's one of our world, you know, he's uh, won the world championship in 2017. Um, you know, he's been on the podium a few, a few other times and he's, he's the the best that um, you know, he's the best out there that we've seen. And on the women's side um, there's a woman named Allison Grace Morgan and she's someone who's, it's been a journey for her. Like I um, announced the flow track event and I, their last one that they did in 2016 and she had run six Oh seven, but she left, I she left basically a gallon of beer. There was, I've never seen that much beer left over in an elite beer mile, but she decided it was something that she wanted to do. And so when she came to London for us the next year in uh, 2017, she was in the chug zone on world record pace and had a reversal. And then finally um, she was injured in 2018. And finally last year she won her first title in um, 624 and that's brushing up right against the 617 world record and so that's been her focus is just kind of taking down that world record and um you know uh, i guess we'll see what happens
2: yeah so when she ran you said she ran a 607 in one but we have too much beer so it didn't count as a record
1: and so l- let me be clear on the women's world record we, we had a great champion named Erin O'mara one of the best drinkers that we've we've seen in the event and she ran um 608 at flow track but we found that the chug zones were uh, you know, a little bit too long and the track was a little bit too short. And so we, um, we don't consider that the world record. Um, it's just not, it's just uh yeah. It, no. <laughs> yeah.
2: If the track is too short. I agree.
1: Well, when you extend the chug, the chug zone was um, like seven or eight meters too long. And because people walk through that chug zone, that's essentially reducing the race three times that the amount that it's short. So that's why, do you understand what I'm saying? They're covering that ground, which is effectively short.
2: Period. You can walk it while you're drinking. You're not running. You're recovering. Makes sense. And you talked about earlier making this more accessible. But, you know, then at the same time, you have, like, the legal issues and that sort of stuff, responsible drinking. How do you, how do you guys balance those things? We're always subject
1: to local law. So one of the harder things about, um, you know, getting... Uh, getting a permit for a beer mile is like, if you try to go to a university or high school, they may have rules against that. Whereas when we go to Europe, it's, it's a little bit easier. Um, when we, when as far as safety for our elite athletes, you know, we do all, you know, we take care of the athletes. We make sure that they're never put in a position after the race, uh, you know, where we, where they're in danger, where they're driving or anything like that. So, um, from our point of view, we, we love working with the elites because, the, you know, they, they work with us and they follow the rules. So there, there's safety that's kind of built in to the culture whenever they come to one of our events. Um, it's a lot harder when we have open athletes or, you know, just the community running it uh, where we don't know where they're going or where they're coming from or, you know, where they're going to go next. And, you know, uh, this is uh, also, you know, a lot of what we do is about risk management and just managing the risk from a safety standpoint, making sure that our athletes aren't in risk or putting other people at risk.
2: Yeah. So the virtual event's perfect in some ways, because, you know, the, the timer can drive the person to the track. They can exactly. drink film home and then they go home. There's there's no risk of anyone being dumb and drinking and driving. And Yeah.
1: And, you know, anytime you have alcohol, there's always a risk that, you know, you're going to, your judgment's going to be impaired. You know, fortunately, like it's, you know, it's when you think about binge drinking, I always like to say it's on the fringe of binge where, you know, we're at we're at four beers and, uh, you know, so we have to be careful. But it, it's, you know, maybe the same amount of alcohol as a, a really strong Long Island iced tea. So,
2: yep. Kids, don't don't get glorified by this. Drink responsibly. Kids, you yeah, shouldn't we, be drinking at all, actually.
1: That brings me like we're, one of the things that we're doing, um, we're, we're launching a, a program called Chug for Good. And it doesn't involve beer. Our, our you know, we know that our beer milers love to do chugging races. We always have a uh, boat, an international boat race amongst the um, national teams uh, after the race. But we're just doing uh, one of our participants and former world record holder, Jim Finlayson, lives with MS. And so we're doing a fundraiser called Chug for Good, where you chug water or beer or whatever the beverage of your choice is. It's teams of three, uh, kind of like a junior, like a, a mini boat race. And it's all for a good cause to, to end the world of multiple sclerosis.
2: And yeah, it sounds like a great cause. We'll put links to that in the show notes as well. Anything else people should know about this Saturday?
1: Uh, There's some really great performances, uh, really great races, and so there's definitely a reason to watch. I know the world is starved for racing, and uh, this definitely is um, some historical racing that you will see this weekend. But I just can't tell from who and where, from who and what times.
2: (laughs) All right. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us.
1: Okay. Thanks, Weldon.